Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio, and this is KWAD Radio, and this is KWAD Radio, and we're on the air. Not hearing you. Hang on, we're having a few difficulties. I'm not sure. Now you're on. Huh? It's delayed broadcast. Okay, so we're introducing today, uh, we're, we're trying out some new uh, equipment here, so we're, we're trying to go through Skype. So if you wanted to ask any questions, either on chat here, you can uh, go ahead and, and write in straight from Plot Talk Radio, or you can listen to us, or you can go right into Skype. And Skype, uh, the address from for me here is pj.altstrand.com. It's H-U-L-T-S-T-R-A-N-D. That's my Skype address, pj.holtstrand. H-U-L-T-S-T-R-A-N-D. We're talking today to Donald Jocks on his regular show here on space and home setting. And today he's talking about the biological closed loop life support. Don, are you in? Yeah, we're here. How you doing, Patty? Good. Oh, I don't want that to have to see. Hi, Patty. Hi, Don. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. I'm kind of excited about our chance to talk about biological closed-loop support. And just so as everybody knows, what, what it, there's, there's two key words here. One is biological, and that's just animals and plants and people working together. The other one is closed-loop. Closed-loop means that basically everything gets recycled in the system. In a typical open loop is more like what we live with each and every day, where we have um, we put gas in our car and we drive down the road and and we don't generally see anything other than that the car moves, and that's more of an example of an open loop. We don't see all of the pieces that go into it. With a closed loop system, you you see and you monitor all of the pieces that go into uh, the loop that does whatever it is that you're trying to do. In our case, we're talking in regards to a closed-loop system as it relates to a lunar or Martian settlement. One of the challenges that we face in any kind of a system is the principle that you've got to, if you're going to go to the moon, if you're going to go to Mars, you've got to have everything that you need to go with you. 
once you've got that stuff there, then you've got a limited time frame to survive on the materials that you take. So if we add a closed-loop life support system that can recycle everything that you do take with you, then we can reduce by a great amount the amount of materials you have to take with you. So it's the ultimate way to pack. Yeah, kind of, sort of. Uh, it, it would be like uh, take it. It would be like uh, taking uh, one loaf of bread with you in your suitcase, getting to your destination, and every time you take a, a slice of bread out of the loaf, another one appears. Kind of, <laughs> sort of. Um, Don't we wish that would happen. Uh, oh, yes, we could save lots of time and money that way. But <clears throat> I thought it'd be more like vacuum packing. You know how they have these vacuums that you that you suck the air out of your clothes so that way you can pat more into your bags? <laughs> That's one way to think about it. But and and to a certain degree, when we do go uh up, we're gonna have to have We're going to have when we do go. We're going to have to carry some supplies with us. What those supplies are and the nature of those supplies are going to be dictated by you know where we're going, how long we're going to be there, and so forth. And, and the, the typical scenario that NASA does, for example, on the Apollo missions, you carried everything with you that you were going to use and need for the entire mission. Now this means that you've got issues in that you can only carry so much because your fuel reserves are only going to get you so far. And so you're limited. When we're talking about a short duration mission, such as the three day, three to four day trips to that they landed on on the moon, you've got circumstances where you don't have to have a whole lot of food, air, and water, just enough for those few days. If you're talking a longer term commitment, such as a base or a settlement of some kind where the system has got to grow, then we've got to take a whole different view on how we build this base and go forward. That sounds cool. That sounds cool. I just want to let everybody know that you can call in uh, 714-242-5145. You can call in 714-242-5145. We're also on chat on Blog Talk Radio and also chat on on Skype, although I haven't been able to figure out how to get that back up. So <laughs> I will. Uh but it's just let you know. You can uh you can chat with us either way, have questions. Also be checking on, on uh Facebook regularly to see where we are there. If anybody has any questions and comments. We're definitely you know, Don doesn't want to just talk all the time. He'd like to be able to have interaction with you guys. So again, seven one four two four two five one four five is our call-in number. Okay, so Don, we're, we're you're talking about um, now you're talking about biome, meaning that they're plants, insects, and, and, and everything. Uh, yeah, biome is if we look at the biome concept, it's the idea of starting with a surviving cell, a way that 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 a smallest component can actually continue to live. It, it's when, when Traditionally, when we talk about putting a base, quote-unquote, on the surface of the moon or on Mars, 
we talk about the idea of we're going to send up uh, a housing unit, we're going to send up experiment units, we're going to send up probably a transportation unit like a rover, we're going to send up the astronauts, we're going to send up um, all of the equipment that they need to go there, get there, do their thing, arrive, come back, and all in a complete package. But it's not necessarily a biome because it's simply, it's more like uh, you're packing up a car to go on a trip. You're not carrying enough money that if something goes on goes wrong, you've got to stay there for a few days. Um, mm. Hopefully we don't run into that scenario, but more and more often today, most people that do go on trips, you know, you've got a reserve in your bank accounts or your credit cards, but you're not carrying the components that you would be able to survive over the long term and and actually grow over the other. And here's the difference. If you go on a mission, that mission has a very specific purpose. You do your research, you do your tests, you collect your samples, and then you come home. But if we're going to settle, this is different. We're going to live. And in going to live, we have to be able to do more than just the experiments we're defined to do. Okay. Um, I was wondering, though, if if we're talking about, you know, taking what we can. Obviously, we can't go back and forth and, and get what we forgot. Exactly. Or, in, for instance, we, we have the whole traveling system that we have now where we can't take a lot of things because of security purposes. Now, you think we're going to have the same kind of issue where we can't take our tooth to toothpaste. Because, heaven forbid, somebody's going to blow us up with it. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, setting aside customs and the TSA and and all of the different things that go into dealing with just getting on a plane, we have to look at settling on another planet from a whole different perspective. History gives us a couple of very good examples that were recorded fairly discreetly when we look at the settlements that were made in the New World from Europe in the 14 to 1600s. And if we come forward a little bit and we look at what happened in the American West as people migrated westward from the expanded early colonies, we see that people traveled, in most cases, on a, on a wagon of some sort or when they come across on the ship, they carried the minimum materials they would need to survive, not just for the few days to get there, but they carried food, they carried water, they carried um, uh, other stuff like tools and, and equipment to make what they would find they would need when they got there. In a typical mission for NASA or other space-based org organizations, they take only what they need for that specific mission. They have tested, they have trained, everything is geared to the accomplishment of the tasks associated with that specific mission. When we do a settlement, the problem we face there has to do with the idea that we don't know what we're going to need to do when we get there. We have a, a general idea, but many of the issues we face revolve around, if you're setting up a settlement, you're going to be doing construction. Well, what's it like to construct something on the surface or in a cave or in a in a tin can on the moon. You've got issues of gravity, you've got issues of 
your environment is different and the gases that you're breathing, it's not the same as we would breathe here on the beach. Mm-hmm. So your body's going to behave differently. Your metals, that you, if you're welding something, is going to behave differently. If you're, if you're cooking something, it's going to behave differently because the air is not as compressed. So um, heat is going to transfer differently. If you're, if you know, and here's a big one in, in the space station. They have to be careful how moisture travels if it's allowed to through the space station because any small amount of moisture that's say a stray water droplet gets loose. All it has to do is get behind the contacts of any electrical panel, and you're going to short something out. That's just that's just going to happen. It reminds me of the movie I saw on uh, Undiscovered Country with uh, Star Trek last night, and where they shot the Klingons, and their blood was like, you know, oozing out like big globulets, and, you know, attaching to other things because there was no gravity. And then, of course, attached to the the boots as they went through the transporter. Mm-hmm. So uh, this it, that's kind of thing where you got the water droplets, just like that the purple blood of the Klingons, mm-hmm. uh, going through you know through the space station at the same time. And that's that's the whole thing because you never know how it's going to act. You never know how things are going to turn around. And this is the wonderful thing about a frontier, whether it's the old West frontier, the frontier of the new colonies, or the frontier of space that we face now. And so as we look at history and we look at these old frontiers, we can learn great lessons from them and draw from these the ideas of what we need to take with us in the in the coming space frontier. And so let's let's kind of begin on that note and talk about some of the very very basic things that we would need to take with us. I mean, just start with yourself. If you're packing a trip for for you and your family, Mm -hmm. and you're going off to somewhere, and you're not just going for a week, you're going there for six months, what kind of things come to mind that you're going to want to carry with you right off the bat? You can't take six months' worth of meals. You can't take six months' worth of hamburger helper or or (laughs) frozen juice because you're not going to have a freezer. Right, right. So just what are some things that come to your mind? Well, obviously the toiletries. You, you have to take toiletries, and uh, if you're talking about the, the food, obviously any, anything that's dry and uh, that you can add liquids to when you're there. Um, if you need milk, then obviously there's the dried milk, things like that you can take with you. But again, you, you six months, you're not going to be dragging around, you know, uh, six carry-ons. When you're trying to go from one place to another, it's just <laughs> not going to work. So exactly. you know, you're going to have to compact as much as small things as you can. This is just the beginning of the, the challenges that we face. One of the things that the early homesteaders in the West and the pioneers who came across to the New World assumed was is that you had to break your supplies down to the absolute minimums that you could then combine to make something better. And some of the things that they brought across happened to be, for example, they would bring um, uh, meat that had been salted or cured in a way that they could carry 
um, substantial qualities of this, quantities of this, and it would store for long periods of time. It was like called kiln-dried ship biscuit or cooked beef in that day, and they would carry 180 pounds. Wow. Um, you're talking a couple of hundred, uh, 180 pounds of bacon, 100 pounds of dried fruit, 60 pounds of beans, peas, some lard, sugar, rice, coffee, salt and pepper, vinegar, molasses, of course your water, but you're also going to be carrying raw flour. And, now, and if you think about it, if you carry these items, that's food that will last you a long time. Didn't they kind of do the same thing when they were in ships? You know, ships that went across that, the ocean? Absolutely. You had... Those were six months or more at a time. They were. You know, so, you were looking at, at two to four months to cross the Atlantic Ocean to get to the colonies from Europe. So the only thing that you don't have on the list is rum. <laughs> Absolutely. Of course, I really wonder how long it's going to be before they start making their own drinks when they get to the settlements. Well, yeah, but they would have to find some place to, you know, for the grapes if they had, if they make well, grapes. Well, whether it's grapes, wine. corn, whatever, and most cellulotic things can do that. But here's something to think about. Even if you take these kind of supplies with you, you know, we're talking about a thousand pounds, maybe two thousand pounds of supplies, and these these may just be for one person for six months. I mean, these are just samples oh, really? of of what it would take for, for just... Um, that seems like an awful lot of eating. <laughs> Basically, um, I've done some reading, and there are three books. I'm going to give you some references here. Westward Expansion by Sarah Quay, Wagons West by Frank McClinn, The Emigrant's Guide to California by Joseph E. Ware, and Brief Practical Advice by T.H. Jefferson. Now, it's important to understand, all four of these books were written back in the late 1800s, and so you're looking at something that's not likely to be in print today, but you can find references to a lot of these on the Internet, um, and if you Google um, them by title, you'll find some of these references. But in each of these books, they talk about the cadre of supplies that people were carrying. And oftentimes you were looking at 90 days of supplies is going to weigh anywhere from, from two to 3,000 pounds. Then that's a lot of weight to be hauling around. And at today's prices of getting that much weight into space, that's substantial. But here's the difference. That 2,400 pounds or so represents six months' worth of supplies, where we just sent up on, the recent, on this final space shuttle mission uh, supplies for a year that was almost, uh, what did he say, a million pounds, I think. Wow. It was huge. Well, it was absolutely huge. Uh, well, how, how so many people A lot of that stuff is prepared. It? Well, you figure you've already got... Already prepared? Uh, most of it's already prepared. It's freeze-dried. Okay. So these are meals in a vacuum pack. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, that kind of so, vacuum hose thing you were talking about uh -huh, earlier. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, and, so, and, and a lot of the times they, they have compartments, and, they, and they're a lot like TV dinners nowadays, but... Here's the thing. You're not going to have the ability on a settlement to store that much food in one place. So it's got to be compact. And this is the benefit of when you're dealing with items such as flour, cooked beef, bacon, fruit, things that are dried so that they can be stored in the open in your settlement facility. 
Well, would they use um, barrels like they used to, in the, or would they use something else? I'm not even sure. I haven't even thought about that. Um, I don't know where it's coming from. You see? <laughs> we're going to take a sh short recess here, and we're going to be back in two minutes, and in that meantime... Please give us a call at 714-242-5145. This is KY Radio, Patty Holstrand. We're back. This is KWAD Radio and Patty Holstrand hosting. And we're with Donald Jocks today talking about bio... No. Biological closed-loop life support systems. Now, if you can say that fast five yeah, times. I can't say that without my cheat sheet. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about just the supplies that one would have to carry for up to six months or at least as the seed to get you going. And I'd like to use that as a segue into talking about how we turn this into a biological life support because all we got is the people at this point. Mm -hmm. So when when we're looking at the principle of a settlement, there are, there is the issue that if it's going to be life support, we've got to have a way to regenerate our not only just our food, but our air and our water. And then we've got okay. the issue of wastes. Well, so, how much water do we would we want to be even taking with us? I mean, that's heavy. It is, and I actually have looked at water, but I don't have a current number right now that gives it, but it's a substantial amount of water. We're talking um, 
hundreds of pounds of water. <laughs> I mean, and here's something to think about. Then you get to cook and all that? Yeah. Okay, so I know we were talking about uh, your other system that you have. And here's, But here's the key. The thing to remember is, is if you carry water up mm-hmm. and you use that water, once that water's been used, either from washing, from cooking, from whatever, you're going to have losses in evaporation when mm-hmm. you cook. You're going to have losses in waste when you use the commode. You're going to have losses in, in just sweat and other things where you're going to have to drink that water. And now that that water is going to be affected by and be reduced as you use it more and more. So we have to come up with a way to recycle that water. Mm-hmm. Now, there are certain things that we can do. You know, simple things like dehumidifier can capture water in the atmosphere and the air. And that's a very simple type of a thing. It does, however, take power and energy. The next thing that you can do is, is if you're going to have your process your liquid wastes, you've got to have a way to put it through some sort of a filtering unit that can handle that. When you're talking about solid waste, which also carries some fluids with them, you've also got to be able to process those wastes. So what we do is we bring in this biological closed-loop life support, and we start by bringing in two very important pieces. And the first is we introduce what's called aquaponics. And aquaponics is a very straightforward way of using fish which you grow and you nurture to be feedstock for yourself as a as a protein source. But also, you take the water that the fish live in and you pump it up into seed beds where you're planting crops. Now, you can run if you find the right balance. And there are some calculations for those, and we'll touch on those at, a, at another time. But for now, you balance the amount of fish that you have in the water with the number of plants that you're working, and you can adjust this size very readily to generate and match the output of the wastes and how much food you need to generate. Once you've done that, you need to add some way to process your wastes as you cook, as you eat, and so forth. On my blog at donaldjock.com, if you go through the space option right away and go over to the blog, there's a there's an entry called Settlement Refinement. And on that, I have a diagram that shows a <clears throat> a biome that I'm that I'm actually proposing would actually work. And just to, to kind of describe this, you've got the humans, and we've got our fish, and we've got our plants but they're not enough in and of themselves to create something that's going to last a long term. The challenge that we face is, is that you, they're just not enough to process the physical waste that we as humans are going to generate. So we need to have some other things in here that are going to handle this. And one of those is, is a furnace, some worms, and a composter. Yeah. Now, the composter is another name, is one name, for something more specific called an anaerobic digester. Now, an anaerobic digester is basically, a, it's it's almost like a bowl of this bacterial soup, and the purpose of that is to uh, process the waste products and so forth. And you never really go in, you don't sip it, you know, yeah, this stuff is nasty. I knew you were to get soup in there somewhere. Oh, yeah, of course. 
But as we process, as we eat and as we work on different things, we pass that waste through the anaerobic digester, and it's basically almost like a biological oven, as it were. It works at a very specific temperature. The bacteria grow and they feed on all the nasty stuff in the waste. Once they're done with it, then you take what comes out of that digester and you process it once more by either cooking it or drying it. Either way, the objective is to dry it out so that you can then mix it in with a standard composter so that the worms and black soldier flies, as two examples, can get in and they digest the rest of the biological materials into dirt. I know you wanted to take worms with you, but I didn't hear anything about flies. And, and, you know, they're annoying here. Why would I want to take them to the moon with me? These are black soldier flies, and we place them in a position within the, the biome in a very specific place. They're captured in a way that they can go through their life cycle as as larvae that work within the composter. But mm-hmm. then we trap the flies before they can actually get out. And then in that trap, we then take the flies that we capture and take them over and we can feed them to the fish. Oh, I like that idea. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the whole idea is to take the biome and use every part to feed another part. In the diagram that we have, I show human solid waste goes to the chickens, goes to worms, goes to the furnace. The furnace actually burns crop waste to create what's called biochar. And basically it's just charcoaled cellulose material. It could be bamboo stalks, might be the leftover stalks and things from other plants like alfalfa or corn or whatever that you might be growing at the time. And you char them before you put them into the composter. This adds um, uh, carbon into the mix. By adding this biochar into the compost, you now make that soil very, very fertile. Once we start building up soil over time, we can then start doing additional soil-type planting in the settlement. Building up a substantial amount of composted material is going to take several months of eating plants and and the animals and the bones and so forth. But in addition, we're also talking here, I mentioned the fish at the very beginning, but we're also talking about dealing with chickens. And I'm actually recommend that we take a small number of chickens whose primary purpose is to provide eggs. Secondary purpose is to provide fertilizer that gets to drop into the fish tank as well. The more manure we can push into the fish tank without overloading the fish, the more nutrients we can give to the plants that will then grow in the system. In my diagram, I've actually added a few other things. For example, we've added duckweed as one of the plant products. I was going to ask you what kind of plants you suggest. First off, we're going to start with duckweed. Duckweed is is almost like a... um, It's bigger than algae, but it's smaller than a lily uh, by a great deal. It it almost looks... uh, and it kind of has a, a, a distant appearance, almost like a, a powdery, puffy kind of thing that grows on the top of the water, and it floats. And what you do is you, you scoop it out of the water, you dry it out, and then you drop that into the fish tank, and the fish eat it. They love duckweed. Mm. And so that becomes your fish food. So now we've covered some things. That's why they call it duckweed. <laughs> Very close. So now we have a food for the fish that keeps the fish alive. We use the plants to keep the fish alive by filtering the water for them. And the fish, in turn, 
waste in the water feeds the plants. But we're still not enough to get to a workable biome. Now we've added chickens to add additional nutrient waste into the fish water that gets pumped to the plants, and that helps, but it's still not enough. I have a question on, uh, you were talking about duckweed, but I would consider there being other things that we would need to grow in order to be self-sufficient up there. Uh, right, and I'm getting that, because you've got plants like lettuces, mm-hmm. uh, things like radishes, carrots. You can grow most vegetables in an aquaponic system. What about things like cotton for in order for us to make more uh, clothes for the people who are you living know, That's there? an interesting point, because... And in a lot of the discussions I've had so far, we've talked about food, food. and waste products, right. but we haven't talked about creating new new clothing items. And you're talking about self-sufficiency and, and, and people who are living there, they need to be able to have something that they can actually make. Absolutely. But you're talking something that the return for cotton... Take a package from home after all. <laughs> the problem that you face with something like cotton is, is you need a huge field to grow enough cotton to make a single garment. Well, that, yeah. By huge, I'm talking something the size of a backyard at least. Right. Okay. I mean, I'm not talking a great big huge plantation. Well, but And that's just to get you a decent garment or two. That's true, except for one thing, that if you if you had a smaller plot and then had just some, you know, certain number of, of plants, these plants can be grown over and over again. You're going to oh, use absolutely. a seed. absolutely. And that's the whole point of the, the aquaponics system. The aquaponics, where the fish and the plants work together and... They trade off constantly. You're you're generating this ability to grow. Mm-hmm. There was a, a, a there was a sentence in a 1984-85 report that NASA produced about one of the first uh, closed system biological efforts that they made. They put a man in one chamber and a bunch of plants in the opposite chamber, connected it with some fans, and provided some stuff to go through, and for most of the project, he ate and drank and worked in that environment for the period he was there. The interesting note that they found, and there's only one mention in the entire document, where they mentioned that when the human exercised, they found and that as he exercised, he increases the carbon dioxide in the, in the unit. Well, they found that almost almost immediately... The plants started sucking in that carbon dioxide and generating oxygen as a result. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the plants will automatically respond. I don't. I have never ever read of any kind of a mechanical system in any industry that can respond to that level immediately. I mean, yeah, you can build a device with fancy sensors and all sorts of power, but once the power goes out, you're screwed. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, that's true. You know, it, it's not something that can dynamically adjust to the other thing. And, you know, when we talk about biological life support, there's a reason that I focus on biological varieties, and that has to do with the very simple point that life began on our planet from a biological soup. Mm-hmm. It started with single-celled creatures mm-hmm. that gradually grew, expanding their size, their communities to such a point that that over time, over these millions and millions of years, we had the establishment of fish and plants and insects and animals and, and of course, us. And over uh, the dinosaurs. And the dinosaurs. But these things had to grow and develop from something very, very small and very tiny. Even our own reproduction starts with a single cell. Yeah. And the principle that I'm trying to put across here with the biome 
is that the biome represents that single cell, that smallest, fully functional, fully viable point that we can start with on any settlement effort. That biome has to include plants, animals, insects, bacteria. It's also got to include some small source of power because we're going to have to feed it with energy. Mm-hmm. But here's the beauty of a biological life support. If you add biomass, your biome will grow. This is something that a mechanical system cannot do without huge levels of industrial infrastructure, without lots of power. It cannot grow. You drop a tin can on the moon, it ain't going to get any bigger. And you're going to need whole manufacturing systems to make that thing bigger, or you're going to have to drop another one on there to the tune of several billion dollars per can. Well, if we're talking about uh, arcing, you know, sending an arc to the moon, so you're talking about insects. You know, I was actually hoping that the insects would not make it on the arc. (laughs) (laughs) But now you're telling me it's necessary. Well, well, yeah. I mean, think think about what other animals are we are we considering putting on this arc? Well, the deliberate ones I've mentioned so far. We've got uh, you've got uh, a red. Earthworm <coughs> that's in the recommendation. We've got black soldier flies are in the recommendation. Mm-hmm. I'm also suggesting that a small beehive go along. Oh, bees. Think about it. If you've got flowering plants such mm-hmm. as tomatoes, right. you need bees to pollinate them. So we want to make sure that anybody going is allergic to them. <laughs> yeah. Well, not allergic, at least in the first wave, in the first few few settlements that actually go up, that is a concern. Um, but the wonderful thing about even the insects is, is generally insects have their job to do in nature. Mm-hmm. And as long as you leave them alone, if you don't agitate them, they're going to leave you alone. So we won't take the Africanized bees. We'll take the good ones. No, nah, we want the ones that will stay docile for a while. Yeah, that would be nice. Um, but there's, there, when you ask they're about... They're there to do a job. Exactly. And and the bees, the, the one question that I'm, in my research that I'm looking at now is, can we maintain a small hive? in a habitat space, uh, and that's that's a challenge because yeah. that's something I don't know yet. Usually oh. when we deal, when we think in terms of bees, we think of multiple hives in a great big, huge meadow, and they have absolute freedom to go everywhere they need, and the hive can grow as big as it needs to grow. So you don't think they're going to get confused? <laughs> because well, well, the whole magnetic pull of the moon is completely different from Earth. Yeah, absolutely, but not only that. Why would they fly? You know, we talk about the, the quality qualities of life on the lunar surface being so different because you've got one-sixth the gravity you have here. I know. Imagine what it's going to be like for a bee trying to fly. You know, they're, they're totally getting, he walks out on there on that little I, I stick and he I, goes to jump and he flaps his wing as hard as he does on Earth and wham, he hits the ceiling. You know, I mean, that's going to have to be confusing. <laughs> it's going to take a while for them to undercompensate so for what they're doing. Exactly. They and these are all questions we just don't know. That'd make a great you know, comic strip right there. <laughs> well, yeah, sure. Um, but, you know, you asked a few moments ago about what other plants we would add. Well, here's here's something to think about that a lot of people don't think about, and that is we need to take some swamp plants. You know, those gooey, icky, sucky plants that, that you find in the in the swamps of Louisiana and uh, New Orleans okay. and so forth. Why? Because Because what they do, bog plants actually filter the water. 
Oh, bog plants. And bog plants, yeah. They all, yeah, plants. Don't they also create their own uh, the, the uh, oxygen? I mean, well, actually, all plants bad. output oxygen during their nighttime cycle. But here's the interesting thing about that. There are some plants who actually output more oxygen than others. That's why I was thinking. Mm-hmm. And so as we choose the plants in the various areas of our aquaponics and our biome, we choose bog plants which whose primary purpose is to filter the water, the wastewater that goes through them. Mm. And again, this is where when we said earlier we were talking about human waste and the and the other waste that come through has to go through an anaerobic digester. That digester puts out a soupy kind of material <laughs> that then goes through these swamp plants. Speaking of soupy kind of material, I was thinking, didn't they use those in, in uh outhouses? <laughs> Of course, <laughs> that reminds me of a film, Soylent Green. Do you remember where all the dead yeah. people went into the well, soupy mix? <laughs> soupy mix, they dehydrated them. Well, that's true. They made hey, them into, water world. They made them into water world. Remember when he gets to that to that town on the on the water, and and they're dropping that dead body into that soupy brown muddy mix of stuff and the body just kind of gurgles and googles as it goes down in. That's just totally gross. Too. <laughs> <laughs> but what happens to the toilet doesn't work. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's that's another thought too. Where do you suppose they all went? They didn't go in the ocean. We, we, we they went right there in that soupy stuff. They got to keep all of that stuff together. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's, that's the ultimate recycle <laughs> material there. Right. But see, here's the thing. For every piece that goes into the biome, it doesn't have a single purpose. When we look at a lot of what science has done over the over the years, science has always worked to reduce things, with a reductionist attitude as it's called, to reduce things down to their most efficient point. The problem is, is life doesn't work that way. Let's take the termite, for example. A termite has the ability to process to eat wood, and in the gut of a termite, they produce the food for the termite. They also produce gases. It produces all sorts of stuff, but termites are one of only a handful of creatures on the planet that they've identified that can process the heavy cellulose in wood. Yeah, I think I saw something about that, that they that, uh, they were, that we really need in, this, in our, our world. Termites, and yet that's one thing we're zapping out of our houses. Exactly. The we same is true. The same is true for bees. Bees have been dying all over the world recently. Yeah, and and you know, then again, when we have a hive, we wind up having to either relocate them or destroy mm -hmm. them. Our civilization encroaches because our civilization doesn't embrace nature; it gets in the way, and that's the whole thing that we want to avoid when we look at the biome idea of a settlement. Mm -hmm. Now, human nature being what it is, once we get past the needs of the original biome, civilization of humanity is going to progress forward like humans do. Okay, what does that mean? Well, that means that we're going to end up destroying it anyway. I don't have a whole lot of faith that once, um, and our history bears this out, and I'll give you an example. When the settlers arrived in the New World, and they set up towns such as Jamestown, we'll use that one for an example, as the settlement grew and as it survived, they started adding the accoutrements of civilization. You had the privies and the outhouses. Mm -hmm. You had the, the issues of hand, having to handle waste. You had the issues of 
keeping your food fresh for periods of time. And so they brought in the science and the civilization to handle these huge quantities of food, these huge quantities of waste. You had doctors that had to come in and handle people with illnesses. And most of this is because most of these problems can be traced back to the idea that people like to live close together. Mm. And when we live close together, we assume we must have a centralized management process for whatever it is, whether it's waste, whether it's food, whether it's taxes. Oh, my God. Um, and so we continue we, to graduate. We taxes here, yeah, don't we? I know. Yeah, we did. We Somebody's got to pay for the centralized control. Oh, well, can we leave taxes here on Earth? Can we just leave them here? Then that, that way we don't have to worry about taxes? Nah, in a long-term perspective, not going to happen. Okay, so we're still going to have taxes and dying. Yeah, still going to be there. Okay. But even so, as we progress, the biome will grow hmm. if you give it the chance and if you stewardship it well. The other thing that we face is is that human nature is going to continue forward as it always had. We set up a town. We live with nature for a period of time, working with it, learning to survive. And in that survival, we go forward. But then there comes a point where our civilization begins to encroach upon that desire for survival and being in harmony with nature and we start to again get into this reductionist approach and we start centralizing things and that's where we end up making our mistakes so what we do here with the biome is we bring the elements together that have the best chance of contributing to our survival we set up the fish we set up the plants that gives us food and they process our air and give us oxygen and maintain that that cycle. We take the water and we run it through our bog plants to give us fresh water. And then whatever's left over, again, goes back through the fish and plant cycle to keep the water moving through the system. If you have standing water, it just goes bad. We add the duckweed in to feed the fish. We then come in and we take some of that soil that we get out of our composter. And as we get little bits of soil, we start creating little mounds in our settlement. And we start growing tubers such as beets and radishes and potatoes. And we grow those in our soil that we, that we develop. And the more stuff that we get going here, the better off we're going to do. As our crop plants come off, we're only going to be able to eat between 15 and 20% of the biomass that comes out of our crops. Well, there's 60, 40 to 60% of that material that comes out of those crops. It's got to go somewhere. That's plant material. That's biomass. It's got to be pushed back into the system. And that's what our anaerobic um, digester is for and our furnace. So we're going to burn some of it to give us biochar to put into the composter. We're going to take some of it and feed it to our termites so that they break down the wood pulp. And we're going to take the rest of it, and it's just going to go right into the composter for the worms, the soldier flies, and the bacteria there to work on. Mm. And by creating this combination system, we have a way to keep our waste down, but to also, in the process, produce more food, air, and filter and recycle more of the water that we have. The next yeah, thing that we deal with... That's an ultimate going green situation. Sure it is. And, then, of course, the beauty of it is is it doesn't have to be just for... Uh, a settlement on on the moon or Mars. The, all of these techniques are individually are used all over the country and all over the world right now. You have composting toilets mm -hmm. in the Philippines. You have digesters all over the third world. Um, 
it is our civilization that says, ooh, that's icky, we don't want none of that here, and so we don't have composting toilets or anaerobic digesters built into our homes to keep the well, sludge from ending up. We're into sanitizing everything in yes, America. absolutely. And this creates problems because with mm. all that sanitized waste material sitting down at the water treatment plant, mm. when we get floods like we've seen recently in the Mississippi Valley and, and in mm. the other Midwestern states, that stuff ends up coming out and being overflowed and getting into everything. And now you have all sorts of issues with this centralized systems. Well, yeah, consider that. Well, we very rarely in Arizona get flooded. In Arizona, we don't much. But we still have the problems with the waste. Our systems, are, our, mm-hmm. our cities are growing so big mm-hmm. that our water treatment plants are incapable of keeping up with the explosive growth that we have. We just can't process that level of waste at that centralized location. It's just not feasible. It takes more and more energy and more and more water from from our cities to do that. Now, how big that's getting to be of a problem uh, is not an area that I'm familiar with, only that I know it's a a real concern in many circles. And in fact, many uh, waste production facilities are beginning to look at uh, composting and they're looking at different versions of aquaponic type systems to try and recycle some of these wastes. But here's the problem when you look at a biological system. Your biological system works on a clock. You can't just pump it through a mechanical, like you do with a mechanical system, you can't just pump it through a filtration unit and end up with clean water on the other side. You've got to give the biological components time to work. Here's one of the things. One of the reasons that I said at the very beginning that if we're going to do a settlement, assuming a four-man team going up, you have to carry a minimum six-month supply with you. And here's the reason that that six months is important. Your crops, even your best crops, are going to take between three and four months to grow from seed before you actually get anything that's edible. Okay. So you're looking at a four-month period where you're growing your first crop. And so that those and that's four the best case scenario. You're living on your supplies. We're taking that. Those are supplies that those we're bringing. Those are the supplies you're taking up. Okay. You're feeding water into these plants. You're feeding your fish out of your supply thing be- yeah. until your duckweed grows. You know. Now the only people that are the only elements in here that are actually benefiting right away are your worms and your and your soldier flies, because they're getting your waste on the first day. They're working on the waste side of this process, right. and yeah. your bacteria are doing this. And you're going to see as the system begins to take hold with this, uh, with the setup, you're still going to have time to get up. It's going to take a minimum of, of a week to two weeks before you begin planting. Right. That you need first your month. First. That first month is just getting your habitat set up. Right. It's getting your uh, your construction done mm-hmm. for your your quarters. Your your the equipment and the various things you're you're doing here. And you know, when I looked at that time frame, I got to thinking about that too. Why should we use why should we use and carry heavy metal components when there's another alternative? It's more man hour sensitive. Okay. But if we take up uh bamboo right. as our yeah. construction material yeah. rather than metal Bamboo weighs a fraction of the weight of metal, and in, if we're looking at the moon, right there is the, weight. the weight alone is a big plus. But also, bamboo can be worked by hand with hand tools. Mm-hmm. 
so you don't have to carry up expensive and heavy industrial equipment to manage and, and work the materials you have at hand. I always thought that was interesting. In Gilligan's Island, they always had bamboo everything. <laughs> and I thought it was kind of cool. And, and, you know, that, those details. As I've studied the idea of bamboo, it's really intriguing because you've got this this wood that you can indeed seal it well, mm-hmm. and you can uh, you can punch a rod through and make make it a pipe so that mm-hmm. you can flow water through it. Sealing it can be problematic so that you don't lose a lot of that water flow through, but it can be done. Now, I'm not so sure that I would recommend that specifically for your your piping and, and freshwater piping and so forth. I don't know. I'm, I haven't worked with the bamboo that much yet. Still still under research, but the idea is still sound. We just need to develop the technique. And make a great floor, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Floors, walls, yeah. uh, structural yeah. member. Bamboo on its linear thing, when you the, the length of that tube, is nearly as strong as, as steel. But here's the other okay. thing. When we're on the moon, we're yeah. talking one-sixth of our gravity. It doesn't have to support the weight it does here on Earth. You that's take true. a 200-pound man, right. he's only going to weigh, what, one-sixth of that? That's, uh, what, 30 pounds, 40 pounds on the moon? No, that, that can't be right. No, that can't be right. I never was any good at math. <laughs> uh, one-sixth. One-sixth. Of 200 pounds. Okay. What is that? That's, uh, <laughs> I, I want to know, you know, because, hey, you know, that's the ultimate diet. <laughs> that's 33 pounds. Oh, my God, 33 You take a 200-pound man, you go to the moon, your your weight's roughly 33 pounds. I haven't weighed that since I was, like, four. <laughs> if you're lucky. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and, you know, I, I remember seeing the videos of the astronauts struggling to keep their footing. Yeah, yeah. Part of that was due to the spacesuit because it wouldn't let them bend their knees and so forth very easily. But also, I mean, think about this. You're used you're used to training mm. with 200 pounds of your own weight plus another 200 pounds of the backpack, the suit, and the equipment you're carrying, mm. and you're taking that entire weight down by a factor of six when yeah. you land. That's yeah. got to take some time to orient to. Well, yeah, I would think it gets it takes some getting used to being thirty three pounds. Right. That's uh, and, and you know that brings up another issue that we're going to face. That brings up a new issue that we're going to face with the biome. You know, if you oh. take up a mechanical water filter, you're are, are fish water. actually going to be able to to you know swim? Well, not only will they like they to might be, be able floating to... on top, you know, hopefully not <laughs> upside down. <laughs> Yeah, that's an interesting que- that's an interesting question I hadn't even considered. The idea that the water pressure alone yeah. could be enough to push the fish up or up in the water they wouldn't be able to so there's not in the gravity water. to keep them in. <laughs> I mean, if we weigh 33 pounds when we're 200 pounds on Earth, imagine how much you know a bee or a fly or a fish is going to weigh. Because density is very different than weight. Well, yeah, true. The water, water would density. be less dense, theoretically, so they would, should be able to swim through it. I mean, all things being equal, the relationship should allow them to swim but through But again, it, we think. just don't know some of these, some exactly. of these answers. That's and these are a lot of these are questions we can't answer on Earth. No. Ever. We we'll can't never be able to answer, can a bee fly in a vacuum? And this is something we, we brought up or talked about before about research. And says you can only do so much research on the Earth because you can't simulate absolutely everything. And so, like you like you were saying before, we won't know these answers until actually we get on the moon and actually make it happen. Uh, and here's, we'll here's something. Out. 
And not only that, but you have to go with the assumption that you're going to make it work when you get there, that you're going to have to solve these problems when you get there. The typical you're mission... You're going to be an entrepreneur when you, know, you need to get some people who who think outside the box and, and can take you know a box of stuff and be able to figure out what to do with it. Absolutely. And and here's the other biggest problem. I I, I truly believe that, and, and this is not to discredit NASA or the engineers that work there, but... The, the problems that are faced in a settlement on another body that has different gravity, where you're going to have to run your own air supply, where you've got to set up all of these things and you get to deal with all of these different variables, the simple fact that there is no way to test all of these variables together on this planet should tell us that we can't solve most of these problems easily and that the, the amount of money and the amount of effort and man hours that it would take to try and solve them here isn't going to do any good because we can't test it. You know? That sounds very interesting. And uh, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. This is Patty Holstrand from KWOD Radio. We'll give you a two-minute break. We're back, and we're KWOD Radio. This is Patty Holstrand, Word of Donald Jocks. And I just wanted to remind every, anyone who's listening, please call in, 714-242-5145 is our call-in number. As we, again, we are on live right now, and it, for anybody who wants to listen to this program, and it, it will be archived in, in its entirety about an hour from now. We have about 30 minutes left, and I'm not sure if we'll take that whole time, but uh, I just wanted everyone to know that Don has several books 
and they are on AZ Publishing Services website, and that is AZ, like in Arizona, publishingservices.com. You can find the bookstore right on the front page. Go under navigation, find a bookstore. He's got several books in fiction, and he's got a, a homesteading project, 12 Steps to Permanent Lunar Settlement. And that book is a, is a booklet. It's, it's not a big booklet. Um, briefly, Don, we were talking about your book that's coming up. You, you've got the little booklet that you that you just put out. Tell us about that compared to the bigger book that you're doing. In the handbook, I discussed the, basically the um, the steps to get to a settlement, and I introduced the concepts that are involved. Um, in the larger book that will be released uh, hopefully by this fall, I'll be going into detail about how we could approach each of these 12 steps and how we might accomplish them to get us into a full settlement that actually survives. Some of the questions that I pose or point out in the handbook are revolve around who are the players, um, what is the, um, what kind of goals do we need to set, what kind of an organization would we want to use. Um, typically, a lot of people assume that we would set up a nonprofit to do this type of thing, but a nonprofit has issues that might not necessarily be conducive to getting us to an actual set to the settlement on, on the moon or Mars. There's issues of how do you fund this type of a project. And in the handbook, um, I talk about the suggestion that's been made before of some sort of a raffle or a lottery. And there are issues both with a lottery and with a raffle, and I'll discuss those in detail in the, in the full-size book coming soon. Then there is how do you promote this type of a thing to generate additional revenue over the life of the project. And so we talk about all sorts of ways to merchandise and to generate media attention to the project. Um, then you've got issues such as mission training. And then what kind of components are you going to use to launch into space? And what is where would these components come from? Um, I used as a, as a model for the, for the whole concept um, Dr. Marshall Savage's book, The Millennial Project where he talks about the eight steps to a galactic civilization. And I became frustrated with the book because it, the book itself assumes that each piece gets started with a large block of people who come together for the sheer choice of making this happen. Mm. The level of com cooperation that he suggests would be necessary to accomplish each of these steps is huge on a level that goes beyond the Manhattan Project, that goes beyond the Apollo Project, that I think even goes beyond the the level of cooperation we found in World Wars One and Two, where we had the cooperation between multiple nations. And I think what the Millennial Project hopes for is a change in human nature. <laughs> that fosters that level of cooperation. And I just do not believe that we're going to see that well, that's in the why, coming century. That's centuries. why I was laughing. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, we've had how long to actually change our ways, you know, since, exactly. you know, since the time of, uh, well, we won't say it. Yeah. So. In looking at history, what I found was is that 
when you go back to the the expansion of the American West, you go back further to the settling of this continent, mm-hmm. you go back further to the migrations that occurred in Europe and how civilization, how people spread, it always expanded outward from a central core, from that single cell that started the whole thing, that had a critical mass of living, working ideas and components that had the capacity to grow. And if we're going to go into space, we've got to repeat that same process. No frontier is going to be accomplished without it. Well, I remember in uh, Venice, Italy, they had a lot of problems with the sewage systems and with the water, uh, you know, flowing through the town. And of course, they 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 got lucky. I guess they had Leonardo da Vinci at the time, mm-hmm. who uh, helped them out and actually devised something that was uh, very unique for that time period. You mean they just didn't dump it in the canals? Well, they were doing that before. That didn't oh, work. Okay. So London already tried that, and 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 that is coming back on the tide. They can't, you know, they're they're waste. Okay, coming back at them. Mm-hmm. So uh, they had to figure out a different way, aqueducts. And, and it was and a lot of work. It was a, lot a work. hell of a lot of work. But even, even more so, you had to engineer it to begin with. The, 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 one fa- the one thing that I consider a fallacy when we look at technological-based uh, attacking on the frontier of using, you know, the ISS, the, it's a wonderful piece of technology, and it does a great job at what it does. But... We can't use the same methods and procedures to establish a beachhead on the surface of the moon, much less on Mars. The travel time, the radiation, all the issues that are there, we're just not going to find solutions that are going to be viable. It really worries me when I see programs that tells tells us how many how many centuries it took us to actually devise the indoor bathroom. I mean, (laughs) what are two of the functions that people need the most? Well, food and Waste management. But here's something to think about. We won't bring up the third one. Yeah, there was. Here's a thought to think about, though. Civilization has a nasty habit of abandoning us every once in a while. When the Roman Empire was at its peak, they had indoor plumbing. They they went backwards. But once it collapsed, everything went backwards. In fact, we didn't get toilets until the late 1800s. Well, that's what I, that's what I mean. I mean, you know, they had medical. It was hundreds things. of years later before we had. Uh, my understanding, they even had uh, where they were actually going into the brain, you know, drilling holes in the brain, uh, and understanding more than we did, you know, uh, back in the Roman times, than we did. Uh, well, many civilizations. You you, you look at the 17, early 18th Chinese. century. You look at the early Chinese. Well, yeah. Civilizations. Yeah. You look at the early Egyptian. You look at Rome, you look at the Greeks, um, and and those are just four of the biggest. Even the Persians had their period of, of very high-tech arts and, and science where they developed many things that then were lost when that civilization collapsed. The Mayans mm-hmm. and the Aztecs also had their periods. Now, I don't well, know they just left the planet. No, there's the planet. <laughs> Maybe they did get to the moon and yeah, then maybe, got the moon. maybe they already maybe they already had their habitats underground that we don't know about. As we wrap up, there there's a couple of things I want to make sure I bring out. Okay. One of these is is that the level of cooperation that Marshall Savage proposed just isn't gonna happen. And too, he also too grandiose. Too grandiose. 
it's it's a wonderful idea, and I think that in the eons that that are ahead of us, there may be the possibility that we can achieve that galactic civilization, but not we're not going to start it the way he talked about by people from all the nations of the earth gathering together and there's one great big huge grand man-built island in the middle of one of the oceans. Mm-hmm. Just not going to happen. Somebody's going to get ticked island off. Island of Dr. Moreau. Island of Dr. Moreau. Ooh, that's even scarier. <laughs> but I do think that we have the skills, we have the technology, that if we simply step back a little, mm-hmm. it's not necessary to eschew technology. I think that's a bad choice as well. Mm-hmm. But I think that if we step back and look at this as a frontier, treat it as a frontier in the Mm -hmm. same way that the pilgrims did, in the same way that the uh, people going west did, you don't take your technology. You leave the technology back. You take what you need to survive. And to survive, that's food, air, and water, and tools. And then with the tools, they took their animals. They took their animals. And it was the animals that helped them get through. Their oxen or. Yeah, those things. Oxen, goats, chickens. Yeah. Uh, you had all of these things. So and that's many people assume that you, you you would need all those things when we go to the right. And as we build kind of common this, sense things. Yeah. And that's that's just it. And the single thing that needs to go with us on that very first trip to the moon is common sense. <laughs> well, we'll have to make sure he gets a ticket. <laughs> <laughs> we cannot assume the technology is going to solve overall problems because it doesn't. No, sometimes it's, it's sometimes the old technology. It creates the problems, yeah. The old tech is actually better sometimes. Mm-hmm. We've learned that with our cars. Automobiles are wonderful things, but they're killing us. Yeah. Between the pollution and the gas and the waste and the steel and the rubber that gets thrown in heaps around mm-hmm. our cities, we look at the wonderful technologies of plastic, probably. Just an incredible thing. We have it in our pill bottles, our co- our computers, our headphones, our our cars. I mean, the very shoes and clothing we wear has plastics in it all over the place. Mm-hmm. And yet, we are now learning that there is 100,000 miles out in the Pacific Ocean that is collecting a lot of this plastic garbage. Yeah. And it's, it's killing it's, fish. Yeah. That they're swirling. It's got an automatic turbulence going and it's all kind of... Congregating in the area. It's areas. chewing up the plastic yeah. just into smaller and smaller pieces that are end up ending up in the food chain. Animals. And those chemicals get into us. Are going to get into us yeah. and harm us ourselves. And so we've got to we've got to look at better ways to address the things that we face yeah. and to move forward in a way that embraces the biological cycle, so that things should have a reasonable lifespan. You know, they shouldn't last for 2,000 years before they it break goes, down the it goes, it goes back to one simple question. You want paper or plastic? <laughs> That's a good way to put it. And, of course, up here, on if we do get our settlement up on the moon, the question won't be paper or plastic. It'll be bamboo or... It's going to be bamboo or steel, and yet I don't have... I can't carry the tools I, I say to work steel. the steel or yeah. the, the iron. Well, yeah, wait a minute. Keep in mind here. The very first metals they're going to be using on the moon are going to be ores extracted from the ground. Well, we would have to figure out whether or not you can actually weld those things on there, on the moon. Um, before you get to welding, before you get to welding any metal, you've got to have you've got to be able to process the ore. You're not going to be able to process the ore until you get mining equipment. Yeah, you have to have fire. You have to have you going to have to have a lot of energy to, smelting to produce. Capability, smelting, yeah. absolutely. Uh, You've got to extract that ore from the, the 
the materials of the, the surface. That's, that's a completely different issue. It is. And that's why in my entire proposal, there is no industrial level technology. They carry laptops okay. with them for a reason, because it's a compact information storage retrieval device. It's also a great communications device. But they're not carrying huge pieces of equipment that will let them do heavy mining. There's just not going to be time. They're going to be spending 10 to 14 hours of their day managing the biome itself, the plants, the fish, the critters they've got to deal with, moving forward to try and get the next crop in place in its in its appointed time. And then once they start harvesting, they're going to be harvesting and replanting they're going constantly. Be, they're going to be very busy. Yes. And somewhere in there, they've got to be able to begin to construct the second biome for the next crew to arrive. Right. That first crew that's, is going to be not pivotal. That's a lot of work. It is. It's it's my it's, question one question to you then is because you're talking about taking a few pieces of technology um that these people are supposed to be permanent on the moon are the people behind them uh, the groups behind them bringing things that they may need or find out they need um uh, replacement components for their equipment? I, I, yes and no. Um, if you're talking about bringing up extra drill bits for the drills and saw blades for the saws, yes, I think I think that's important. Okay. If you're talking bringing up uh, hydraulic equipment or, uh, you know, power converters and things like this, no, I don't think so. I think we're looking at something that's going to take uh, three to five years before we start seeing anything industrial length. And, and let me clarify that when I talk about industrial length. When I talk about industrial, I'm talking about things like a lathe to turn metal and, and shape it, okay. uh, foundry equipment that would smelt ores, um, uh, high temperature or high energy equipment for anything, whether it be cooking, burning, uh, or so forth. There are techniques that exist today that people have shown where we can use the power of the sun to bake bricks. Yeah. To yeah. make bricks that can be used as building materials mm -hmm. to seal up a cave, to you know create a road, or whatever it is that they want to do. Bamboo, when you consider the weight that's involved, bamboo would make an excellent railway. Why do we have to smelt metal if we're talking cars and things that weigh one-sixth of their weight here. Well, I guess the question is whether or not it would be sturdy enough material for that. That's. I think, again, question. those are questions that we're not going to be able to know until right, we get up there. Right. We won't know how, when we when we grow the plants there, when we grow the, the bamboo, if it's going to be the same type of material that's grown here. Well, sure. One of the first Any things that I've, I've found in conversation is, is that let's think about this. When plants grow, they grow against gravity. Mm -hmm. Gravity is a right, certain right. force push that up we do. The soil. They've got to push up to the soil. They've got to push through the weight of the soil. Mm -hmm. So some of the very obvious things that are going to happen to all the plants that we're dealing with are, number one, they don't have to push as hard to get up to the plants. That means they're not going to be uh, the, the pressures that the plants feel in doing what they normally do is far less. If you're talking bamboo, you're talking bamboo is, is I would just guess it's going to grow a lot thinner, but it's going to grow a lot faster on the moon. And as such, you're going to have to come up with new ways to deal with the bamboo and to hope that it maintains the strength that you started with. 
Exactly. And those are going to be some new issues that we're going to face when we get up there. Um, when you go to smelt metals mm-hmm. and you pour a metal into a form, yeah. that metal's not going to have the same qualities as it did on Earth because you've got one-sixth gravity. Right. That's so the, the, the thermodynamics of the flow of the metal as it goes into the form is going to be different. Not only that, but how long it takes to actually, uh, you know, uh, mold. You know, exactly. Cool down. Right. Um, All different issues. Exactly. Different issues. You're not going to have, you know, the, the things are going to change when we get there, whether it's smelting metals. And here's another thing. A lot of times when we work with metals, you you cook that metal to a certain degree temperature and you assume that that your your history is such that you can get the impurities out of that metal through that smelting process. Well, that smelting process is going to change on the moon because the, the, the densities, mm-hmm. the weights, exactly. all of this stuff in your atmospheric pressure is different, so your smelting process is going to have to change when you get there. Mm-hmm. The impurities are not going to move right. as quickly as they do exactly. here on Earth, and they're not going to move as slowly as they do. You may have situations where you're going to struggle for months on end in a smelting process on the moon just to figure out how to get the impurities in that you want. Right, right. And so, there, there yeah. again, there are a whole host of, of issues that we face that we cannot solve here on the surface. And so that's why I advocate getting to the moon sooner, not later. Instead of waiting for technology to come down in price, let's find ways to pay for it that don't beat the bank. Right, there you go. And that's where we look at the idea of using a raffle, using lotteries, using merchandising mm-hmm. to build up revenue. Maybe it might take a little longer, but then we spread it out over a longer base. Yeah, we, can we generate would have it. to because you know the government's really not going to be able to pay for this right no. now. In this economy, that, we're looking at a, at a decade minimum before we can go back to spending levels of a decade ago. If we if we even go back to that. If we even get there. And so, uh, so, so if, if homesteading I, space is going to have to be a bootstrap operation right. that we, the citizens, engage in. And if we, the citizens, don't get so fed up with the filth, with the challenges, with the frustrations of our government. And I will remind you that what we've seen across the seas in the other countries in in North Africa and Syria and Yemen these are all the same pressures that were being felt in England mm. before the pilgrims came to America. Uh-huh. They're the same pressures that the settlers and the colonists felt before the migration westward. Mm. They're all the same pressures. But this is more of a worldwide thing. Then. This is more of a worldwide thing. Not just thing. in one particular exactly. country. And here's a trend that I heard very recently. More and more people are abandoning their rural roots and moving to the city because that's where they're finding work. Well, yeah, they would have to stay. And so that reduces that reduces our footprint of farms. It reduces the people who are working on farms. It's reduced, and in the end result is it's reducing our food output. Hmm. So our our very ability to support ourselves is waning because of the very technology we depend on mm-hmm. to give us jobs, money, and the entertainment value that we crave each and every day. And this cycle is not abating. It is getting worse day by day. And these pressures are likely to continue to increase until we do something to change it. And bootstrapping to a new frontier 
is what has happened in the past. It happened before the Romans. It happened to the Greeks. It happened in Persia. It happened in every civilization. As Attic civilization reached a certain point, it either had to collapse, like the Soviet Union did from its all-centralized systems, into a completely different system. Centralization collapses upon itself. And we are moving closer and closer to that centralized government in every country on the planet. Yeah, there's nowhere to expand. There is nowhere to expand unless we push out with biological techniques into the deserts, as our ancestors did in the 16 and 17 and 1800s on this continent. Mm -hmm. And so we've got to bootstrap that new frontier. So the big question I had today is then that uh, with these changes that we're not sure about these uh, variables that we're not certain of when we go to the moon and we're there for generations. Will we be seeing mutants? <laughs> because, you know, yes. like we said, the, the, the third thing that you have in every civilization, you've got your the need for water, or your need for food. Food, air, and water. Food, and air, and actually, water. But I prioritize them as air first. Uh-huh. You've got to have air. Once you've got air, then you can get water process or food processing next. Right. No, water processing. Is well, next. you have habitat. You've got to have water next. But you have with to have a place food, to... with air and water. Right. Now you can plant food. Okay, but I was thinking more of, of other necessities like uh, habitat. And then without a habitat, you've got no way to provide air. And with that, you're going to have uh, you're going to have sex on the moon. I should hope so. <laughs> So uh, eventually, you're going to have uh, children on the cell babies, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, just like the chickens, you know, are going to have babies. You know, uh, as, as as we look at that kind of a future, I think what we're looking at is is that for every species on our planet, we've seen that evolutionary pressures change on a very long scale. As we go to the moon, and as we do have children, as our animals have children, as our plants grow and develop, they're going to adapt to these new circumstances and they're going to change we're going to have a handful of generations before we're going to have to reevaluate the value of each of these items the bees the worms the 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 fish and the plants are all going to change as we will change when we move on to the surface of the moon it will be generations into the future before we see those changes right well that's what i mean but I, I fully expect we're going to see reductions in, in both body mass and muscle mass in in all of the the animal and, and insect creatures. Where we'll, we'll, we'll likely see uh, things thin out and things will extend on the lunar surface as the gravity. You won't be able to eat as much. You won't be able to eat as much, but the plants are going to thin out as well. They're mm-hmm. not fighting against the full Earth gravity to pump moisture up through their their stalks. They're not fighting against the weight of the ground. And so you the think earth. they would be more, uh, a lot more than then? I mean, bushier, taller? Actually, not so bushy. Okay. Uh, things that's that you think sad. of like lettuce mm-hmm. and collards mm-hmm. are going to grow much taller, but they're going to be much thinner skinned mm-hmm. because the fibers are going to really move fast, mm-hmm. but they're not going to clump up as much. Now, right. these plants may, in their in their evolutionary processes, they may find ways that they, they decide that, oh, we've hit a point now, and the plant's evolutionary process will find that that is a limit. 
and it will find a stable point at which it will stop, and then it might push out further. But I think we're going to see some dynamic things happen over time. Um, I think the insects are going to be our very first bellwethers of those changes. Oh yeah. The bees, the 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 uh, um, uh, the worms, and the the soldier flies are going to be our very first harbingers of these changes. Well, I agree because you know, it's not like they're going to understand us when we're saying, "Hey, guess what? We're going to the moon." So yeah. we have no clue what it's going to do to you. And whatever it is that we do, for example, to the bees, because the bees will have to be sedated in some way, yeah. and the hive will have to be they taken wake up and be a whole new, whole new oh. territory. I mean, <laughs> I can't imagine the experience and what's uh, likely yeah. to happen to to the bees as they as they discover this whole new world that it doesn't take as much energy to fly, <laughs> doesn't take as much energy to build their comb, doesn't yeah. take as much energy to process the food. Um, yeah, and and, they, and the air mixture they might go is going to be wild. different. Well, they may not because the air mixture is going to be much different. We know that we can survive right. at, we're, at we're the low sure oxygen mixture, but what we don't know is can the insects survive? Because we've learned to adapt. We've learned we can adapt to it. No, they have too, but mm-hmm. is it that But fast? when was the last time that you saw beehives on the mountains of the Himalayas? Well, first of all, I don't think anybody actually got there actually to look. Um but no, I mean, it's it, it, climbed all the time. Well, it, it, it's, it's constantly it's, being climbed. Well, it's being climbed, yes, but it's so cold. It is so cold. So if they had bees up there, obviously they had to be inside the mountain. But or you know, on some side but, of a where, uh, of a greenhouse or something. Right, so right. These we, are these are things they, that we can do to test the air mixture. We can sorry, test the bees cold are around in spring and summer. They're they're not they're not yeah they're not into this cold weather stuff. <laughs> they're they're smart. But so yeah, you know, bootstrapping into the frontier of space and thinking of bootstrapping in terms of homesteading. You carry six months' supply of what you need to survive, and you carry a set of tools to get you started. Once you arrive, you deal with what you find, and you make it work. The first homesteaders in the first two two to three waves are going to have to solve a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. So they're going to have to be a different kind of a person. They can't be engineers because they don't have the tools an engineer has. They've got to be farmers. Mm-hmm. They've got to be tinkerers, and they've got to be yeah. down-to-earth people who just are committed to make it work. They're going to need to make sure that, that they write these things down. Mm-hmm. They, the findings need to be written down. Oh, absolutely. That's your hope on their publisher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of great books coming out of that. <laughs> absolutely. Oh, just think of what the reality TV shows could be. Well, I, yeah, oh, man. I already thought about that. Oh, and the Playboy Channel? Sex in <laughs> space. I can see it now. When the Internet first came out, do you know, do you remember what industry embraced the Internet first? Well, It was porn. porn. Sure. And they made billions in the first few years yeah. of the industry. Before anybody said, okay, that's enough of that. You know, I'll tell you what, if there's anybody that could benefit the most from this, it would be the porn industry. Because literally, I mean, think about it. The, 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 the idea of being in space and having sex in space and doing shoots in space, yeah, I mean, yeah. oh, wow, the, the, the potential It reminds me of a book I read about spinning. We won't get into that. There's huh? <laughs> whole new meaning to the word sit and spin. Oh. <laughs> I think we're getting a bit loopy here. (laughs) 
one. Take great Thanks for having me, Patty. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> well, it's always on. It's always interesting to talk about your different projects, and I think next time I'm not sure what we're going to talk about, but I'm sure you'll let me know. And this is KWOD Radio, and this is Patty Holstrand signing out for the day. You guys have a great weekend.